Amen. All right. Revelation chapter 18. Um, It is advice that is worth listening to. Two words, steer clear. Steer clear of that restaurant. Steer clear of that neighborhood. Steer clear of the highway and that traffic. Steer clear of that person. And when we get that kind of advice, uh, we can, and listen to it, we can avoid so much pain and heartache um, if we listen to the counsel to steer clear. And in today's passage, a voice from heaven comes to John and says, in essence, steer clear of the world, Christian, so that you don't get pulled into the world's sin and so that you don't get pulled into the world's judgment. Now, that's my paraphrase of verse four in the chapter that's in front of us uh, here today. It's great advice in light of what the world is like today. And it's great advice in light of what the world is going to become as the days uh, progress, what's to come. And Revelation 18, as we study it this morning, it's good for us to understand that warnings are a part of it, just like we've talked about. There's some announcements in the chapter, but the bulk of the chapter is really lament. It's lament songs, like the ones in the Old Testament that mourn the fall of ancient cities. And the chapter is a call to Christians to reject the moral values and the power struggles, structures, and the religious beliefs and practices of the world system that we live in. And so really, in a sentence, what this message is about, what this chapter is about, is we need to steer clear of the world. That's the advice that we're getting from God's word today. And so let me read the passage. You have your Bibles in front of you, Revelation 18. This is probably the longest passage I've read through this series uh, at one time, uh, four minutes and 11 seconds. So sit back and listen to the word of God. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities, Pay her back as she has herself paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury to give her a a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. 
They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed is gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all who trade, whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and a bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. Amen? Amen. Well, here it is um, on the screen in your notes. As a believer, I must steer clear of the world's hopeless destiny. That's what we want to see first, the hopeless destiny of the world. Verse 4 was the, the verse I quoted, paraphrased in the, in the opening. And in verse 4, reading it now, uh, we have this voice from heaven that says, Come out of her, my people. It's, a, it's an appeal to Christians. Come out of her. Come out of the world, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, we could go through a long list of sins, and many of them have been articulated in the book of Revelation, but among the sins committed here is failing to hope in Christ, or to say it another way, finding hope or seeking hope in anything but Christ. Now, we don't often think of that as a sin. We don't think of, of not finding hope in Christ as being sinful. But it is, in fact, let me suggest, it is, in fact, and this is controversial, it's something that people wonder about, it is the unpardonable sin. 
I've probably been asked that question as many times as I've been asked any question throughout my time as a pastor is what's the unpardonable sin? And a lot of people struggle with this and it worries a lot of people and it makes them fearful. Jesus said in Matthew 12, the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. No one wants to commit the one sin that can't be forgiven, correct? No one wants to do this. And what it really is, when you get down to it, it's very simple to understand. The unpardonable sin is the sin of rejecting the kind and generous offer of salvation. That's it. That's the one thing that cannot be forgiven, that you would reject the kind and generous offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's the person who says no to the gospel because what they're doing is they're despising Christ's death on the cross. They're denying the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. They're saying, I'm just like the world, just like the woman, just like Babylon. They're saying, I'm going to find my hope in something other than Jesus. Now notice verse 1, another angel comes, a powerful angel, bright with glory, Archangel of some kind, perhaps. We're not told who. Michael was previously mentioned in chapter 12. Perhaps it's Michael. The angel declares, verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. We've heard that before. That's been predicted. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, every unclean bird. Lots of people are afraid of birds, happy that they're being judged here. Correct? Being banished to the most evil place ever. That's the way I feel about birds, right? Some of you are saying that, I know. Every detestable beast. I mean, this is com complete abandonment to the most evil thing that you could possibly imagine. The, the, the most terrifying horror movie you've ever seen. Multiply that by a billion. Okay, the, the, Whatever it is that has scared you the most in your life, multiply that by a billion. And you're beginning to get a sense of what it's like to be completely abandoned by God, completely abandoned to evil. It's a scene of horror and despair. It's the stuff of nightmares. And why the severity of this, verse 3 tells us, all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So it wasn't so bad that Babylon was just so evil and so anti-God. It was that Babylon set out to lure as many people as possible into her thing. To draw as many human beings as possible to her evil. All these nations that drunk the wine, the passion of her sexual immorality, which by the way, has a lot less to do with sexual immorality as part of it. But really when we're reading it here, it has more to do with idolatry. This is spiritual adultery. We talked about that in some detail last week. It's having other gods other than the God. Then the point is repeated. The kings of the earth, the governments of the earth have committed immorality with her. They bought into her idolatry. They got into bed with her. Not only the governments, but also business. The merchants of the earth, corporations, the wealthy, have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. One translation says that the merchants the world over have grown rich on her bloated wealth. The world and all the people that the world system attracted 
to them. Babylon, the woman, however you want to refer to her. They look to power and to economic prosperity as their hope. They made power and wealth their singular mission. They made power and wealth their gods, their idols, their worship. And it proves in the end to be a dead end. It proves to be a hopeless destiny. Or in Jesus' words, it proves to be unpardonable. So the advice comes to us. The the counsel that Revelation 18 is giving to us is steer clear of finding your hope, seeking your hope in anything other than Jesus Christ. And also, ready for a second one? It's like you don't know me. Ready for a second one? Steer clear of the world's corrupt ways. The sins of Babylon, the woman, the world system, all synonymous for each other. Verse 5, are heaped, notice, heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. So Babylon, the world system, and all those who follow her are not getting away with anything. You can't deny that you haven't been sin, that you that you've been sinful. You, you can't deny that you've been opposing God and looking for your hope in something else. People, people are, listen, people are all concerned today that their Roomba is taking pictures of them and Alexa's listening to all their conversations, and they're not thinking at all about the fact that God is already doing that. God has remembered her iniquities. God hears and sees everything. In your home, in mine, in every home around the world. We need to think about that. And in fact, these sins are heaped high as heaven. There's no limit to the world's sins, either in scope That is to say, the number of different sins that can be and will be and are being committed or the frequency that those particular sins are committed. They're heaped high as heaven. We we tend to explain away sin. We tend to deny it. We tend to excuse it, downplay it. God says, you can't do that. I, I know all about your sin and, and, I, and it's heaped up. It's right here. You can't even deny it. And in fact, verse six just goes a little bit further to demonstrate the extensiveness of her sin. Pay her back as she has herself paid others and repay her double for her deeds. The sin is so grievous that the judgment is gonna come in greater measure than the sins itself. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And this is meant to expose the wantonness of her sin. Verse 7, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen 
I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. The arrogance of that. Self-deception. The absolute denial about the reality of the situation. She is convinced. Babylon is convinced of her own invincibility. The world system that we live in is convinced that nothing will take it down. Supreme power. This is the this is the arrogance, this is the pride that we see in the world system around us. You tell me that this isn't true. We see it in the world. The world thinks it's so much smarter than God. The world thinks it is more sophisticated, more educated than his word, that they know better. The world is so much more progressive than God, so much more enlightened than God. This is the arrogance that we see. This is the queen exalting herself. I'm never going to cry. I'm never going to come to an end. I'm invincible, Babylon says. But for verse 8, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day decisively, rapidly, suddenly. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So this queen, not so invincible after all. And in fact, she is soon to be dethroned. The world's corrupt ways will be her own undoing. And we need to be careful how we're thinking about all of this. In fact, I would just say this, this, is not, this passage is not at all a reason or an excuse for us to be anti-government because there are plenty other passages that tell us, I mean, we're reading stuff here that's going to happen yet in the future with a final judgment. In the meantime, we've been told to honor the king, to be good citizens in our countries. This is not a passage that vindicates anybody who decides they want to be anti-government. That is not in the scriptures at all. So we need to be careful how we're interpreting this. In fact, we might even readily think about the world's sins in terms of gender and sexual ideologies. We might think about sexual, or sorry, sanctity of life issues like abortion and euthanasia. We might think of the liberalization of drug laws. And these are, in fact, important moral issues. And the scriptures speak to all of these. But when you look at this passage, what's it really about? Greed, wealth, power. It's about the foundational sin of of self-sufficiency, of exalting ourselves above God, of pride, of arrogance toward God. We often think about the corrupt ways and we want to run immediately to the political footballs of the day. But that's not what chapter 18 is pointing us toward. What it shows us are matters of the heart. Matters that are resident in in each one of us, even, even when we're believers. You and I need to be careful about casting stones at others. We need to be careful about crusading for certain social issues while ignoring others. 
corrupt ways of the world are heaped high. It's not just about the one pet issue that you're concerned with. All right, here's another. Steer clear of the world's pathetic lament. I mean, there's a lot of crying in this chapter. I said the chapter is dominated by lament. All of the indented sections, most of that is lament. Songs that are being sung here. John sees, verse 9, the kings of the earth. These are the governments who, who got in bed with Babylon and took advantage of her power of the world system to get rich. And they're going to weep and they're going to wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning, when they see her destruction, because now they're realizing we can no longer share in her power as we have before. They see what's going down and they know what's happening. And in a futile attempt to distance themselves, verse 10, they stand far off in fear. And they begin to sing this lament, this funeral dirge. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. But not just the government. They're losing their power. And all that comes with that, verse 11, the merchants. They're sad, the corporations, the wealthy of this world. They're going to weep and mourn for her because all of their markets have dried up. System has come crashing down. No one's buying their cargo anymore. We have this huge list of, of commodities and goods in verses 12 and 13. There's no market for the iPads and the flat screens, for the new cars and the, and the, and the latest fashions and the jewelry. By the way, the list includes slaves. But the Greek word there isn't a normal word for slaves. It's just the word for body. It's demeaning. It's just another commodity. People are just another commodity. But the Holy Spirit inspires here these words, slaves, that is, as a reminder to us, human souls. is another indication of the exploitation of people that help them gain their wealth. And, and then we see this eulogy, verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed, the fruit for which your soul longed, the thing that you thought you would find your hope in, the thing that you put so much energy in, the thing that you counted worthy, the power, the wealth, that's what their heart was going after. This is idolatry. This is about worship. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and all your splendors are lost to you. And even they know it's never going to come back. Humanity's weathered some terrible seasons and come back from devastating wars and plagues. But the merchants know we're not coming back from this one. 
And in fact, in there, you have these merchants who are not believers, who are in turn going to be judged. And yet they're, in essence, speaking prophetic words in this moment. Verses 15 and 16 cycle through the whole thing again, as grieving people do, rehearsing the loss over and over again, so devastated, so hurt by what's happened and unable to come to terms with what they've lost. But in this case, their lament is pathetic. Because it's, it's mere regret at what is lost. It's not remorse leading to introspection and change. It's two very different kinds of lament. Verse 17, in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. They've lost everything and they're sorry about it, but that's the extent of it. Not only the government, not only the manufacturers and wealthy, but the shipmasters, the people that move it all around the world, they feel it too. They're crying out. They're offshore watching the city burn. What city, they say, what city was like the great city? But their eyes were only on the temporal on what they could see, and they didn't realize there's a much greater city that's coming. I can't wait to get to Revelation 21, where the new Jerusalem descends. Eternal city. They couldn't fathom that there was something better. They're so consumed by their sorrow, and they threw dust on their heads as they wept and they mourned. I mean, this isn't just like shedding a tear. They're not just like a little bit sad. This is hard to watch, deep, deep, painful mourning at a great loss. They're crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. It's pathetic. Because all they're seeing is what they're losing. Pathetic, not because they're mourning, but that they're mourning the wrong thing. There's no condemnation here of goods and services and commodities. There's there's no condemnation here of, of manufacturing and business. It's the attitude behind it. It's, it's the fact that it's become worship to them, more important than anything else. Power for the sake of power. Exploitation, injustice, opulence, the love of these things. And the complete lack of regard for God who actually gave them all these things. The absence of any remorse. We would say the absence of any true repentance. But in fact, that word repentance can be used in multiple ways. If you're a Bible student, you've been around for a while, you've heard a couple of stories here. We don't have time to go into the stories themselves. You can track these down later if you're interested. But I'm going to say two names, and you're going to know right away what I'm talking about if you've studied the Bible at all. You know the stories of Esau and Judas. Esau and Judas, it's surprising to people when I, would say that, when, I, when I say this, but Esau and Judas were both repentant. The scriptures record that both repented. 
They repented for what they'd done, and they repented for the consequences of their actions, but they did not repent in the way that they needed to repent. In fact, I was reading an article, a quick article, I think it was a post actually on Facebook by a, a gentleman by the name of Thane Hutcherson Yuri, and he's a prof at Asbury Seminary, and if you're following anything that's going on down in Kentucky, you'll know something about this. Anyways, he posted this thing about genuine repentance. What constitutes genuine repentance? It's a big question that's been asked over the last week. In the Bible, two different Greek words are used to describe repentance. The first one is this. I think both of these will be on the screen for you. Metamelomai is I'm sorry I was caught. That's the kind of repentance. That's the kind of repentance that Esau had. I'm sorry I was caught. I'm sorry that I'm facing consequences for what I did. It was Judas's repentance. He repented. But it was just, I, I, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry it didn't work out. I'm sorry there were unintended consequences. The second word for repentance used in the scriptures is metanoia. I regret my sin. I see it for what it is. And I want to do whatever it takes to not do it again. And Hutcherson talks about these things in his article. So when we, when we come to that word repentance and we want the best definition of that, we want to practice the best kind of repentance, what we're seeing depicted here in chapter 18 is not good repentance, but what we want to practice as believers, we need to think about what that definition actually means. I have for years said it involves two things. You agree with God and you turn to him, but actually there's a third component to it, and that's what we're seeing here. Repentance equals sorrow for sin plus agreement with God about the nature of it plus turning from that sin to righteousness. That's genuine repentance. And if you haven't done all three of those, you're no better than Judas or Esau. You're no better than the merchants and the shipmasters and the, and the kings in the passage that we're reading. What we see here from these kings and merchants is the sorrow of Esau and Judas. I'm sorry it's over. I'm sorry for the loss. I'm sorry we got caught. They're sad about it, but they're not willing to admit it was wrong. They're not willing to agree with God about it. And they're not willing to make any change. Because if you gave it all back to them the next day, they'd readily take it for themselves and re-engage in the same activities, in the same system. Here's the final aspect of the warning. Steer clear of the world's utter destruction because that's what this is all leading toward. You see, John then sees this powerful image in verse 21. It's a metaphor, a mighty angel taking up a stone like a great millstone, think ginormous boulder, and he threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and we found no more. So the finality of this, if you're taking notes, Jot down uh, Jeremiah 51, 63. You're gonna see a very similar image there. And it depicts the city's utter and complete destruction. Everything that Babylon, that this world has been known for is ending in this moment. Verse 22, to, to illustrate the point that this is over, the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. This is truly 
the day the music died. No craftsman of any kind, no sound of the mill, industry, factories, no longer functioning. Verse 23, the power grid down, light of a lamp, no longer there. No bridegroom and bride, no celebrations, no parties. All the things that you enjoyed as human beings, all of God's common grace on both believer and unbeliever. God has poured out so many gifts on this world that anyone can enjoy, whether they worship him or not. Even the joyous occasion of a wedding. No more receptions. No more ceremonies. Because the merchants and all the nations were deceived by Babylon's sorcery. Verse 23. Beyond that, she was covered. Look at this. As if all of that wasn't bad enough. She had to kill her enemies. The blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth, guilty of persecuting those who did believe in Jesus Christ and who did repent in the way that one ought to repent. Steer clear. Now, before we move into the last little section of this, it's important for us to understand that what we're seeing here are events that are completed in eternity. In other words, if we were able in this moment to step off of the timeline and go up into eternity as John did, we will be able to see these events as completed because they happen outside of time and in eternity. You and I were locked down here on the timeline still. And so all of these events still have to play out for us. From our perspective, even though we're reading about the fall of, of Babylon, we're still living in Babylon. Babylon is still very much alive and well. The world system is still very much functional in the world that we live in today. And so this passage affords us a warning, steer clear. And it's a warning to us as believers. The way, the manner in which we become believers. Romans 10, 9 tells us is that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's it. There's no works attached to it. It's simply by faith. If I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, you want to become a believer? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. Every single person is saved in the same manner. But the challenge is there are people who we would describe as professing Christians who have said that they've done those two things. We perhaps have heard them, heard them confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we can only believe what they say, that they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. But in fact, they're only professing that. And, and when you look at the manner of their life, it's not playing out in a way that would prove that they're genuinely Christians. So we call them professing Christians. And many who have professed faith in Jesus Christ are still so attached to the world, so given to the world system, to Babylon, to wealth, to power, to all of the excesses that we see in the world today, given into temptation. And when we profess Christ, 
but look like the world, that calls into question the veracity of our conversion. Are you saved or not? I mean, if you love the world, but you're professing Christ, the question is, are you saved or not? And God gives the invitation, and, and, and we ought to receive that and receive it genuinely. We're, we're, um, we've just recently uh, come to be exposed to a new book series called the Love Your Church series. It's a phenomenal few books. Uh, there's a, a principal book, and then, and then a book, eight books are going to be written about each of the individual chapters in the first book. One of those books is called Belong, written by Barnabas Piper. Our staff team is, is looking at this book right now, and one of the headings in, in one of the chapters says simply this, come as you are, but don't stay that way. In other words, the door's open. The invitation is out there for anyone to come, anyone. Come as you are. Don't think you need to clean up to come. Come as you are, but you can't stay that way. Because ongoing transformation is a defining characteristic of a true Christian. And this doesn't apply to you only when you come the first time. This applies every single time you come. It applied to me this morning. It applied to every person here. I'm going to come as I am. But having been here with God's people, had conversations with many of you, after having worshiped with my own voice and engaged my heart in seeking the Lord, after having heard the word of God proclaimed, I should not be leaving the same person. Amen? I came as I was, but I'm not, I'm not going home the same guy. And that should be true for everyone here. This is the ongoing transformation that must define the life of a true Christian. In fact, to understand this even, even more carefully as, as Christians, what's going on in our lives? We should all be able to say with full integrity, to declare with full integrity this statement. And it shows all the different aspects of salvation. I am justified, declared righteous or saved. I am justified at the moment of conversion. And I am in an ongoing way being sanctified over a lifetime in anticipation of receiving my glorified body in the eternal presence of Christ. And what I love about that statement is there's no demand for me to be perfect that I'm still going to come as I am. Yes, I was converted. I'm growing in Christ and I'm going to keep growing in Christ. There's no statement here that says that I've achieved some level of perfection at this or some arbitrary level of holiness or righteousness. I'm just in process in anticipation of the day when it'll be perfected in Christ. I came as I was, but I didn't stay that way. Or to say it a different way in the language of this message, sanctification is the ongoing process of steering clear of the world. And if we're not being sanctified, if there's no ongoing sanctification, then we have no claim on being justified and we have no hope of being glorified. 
Now let's address one other important point before we get to the last section. Maybe you've heard this before. Christians should be in the world, but not of the world. Have you heard that before? How many people have heard that phrase before? Christians should be in the world and not of the world. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you think that's a Bible verse. Because a lot of people think, well, that's in the Bible. It's not a Bible verse. Not per se, but it does reflect a really important biblical truth. And it's actually part of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. I'll put this up on the screen. John 17, Jesus is praying this. He says, I have given them your word. Speaking of the disciples. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. There it is. If you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. See, I'm in the world, but not of the world. See the principle? But that you keep them from the evil one, that you keep them from Babylon, keep them from the world system, keep them from the woman. Why? Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And the reason why we're not being taken out of the world, I mean, there's a lot of days I'd love to be taken out of the world. Anybody else? The reason why we're not being taken out of the world is because we have a mission here. We're to tell as many people as possible about this gospel, about Jesus, to give them hope. A hope that is grounded in eternity, not in the temporal things of this world. So, so this is the way it goes. Not only am I hearing the warning to steer clear of the world, that's for me, but then I want to tell as many people as possible, you need to steer clear of the world too. And that's the mission. Steer clear of the world and give your life to Jesus. All right, that was a lot. How many, who's in for the last little part here? Yes, we're good? Here's the final part. As a believer, I must steer clear of the world and instead praise the Lord for his just judgment of her. The cry goes out to heaven and to God's people. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven. So that this, is a, this is a call to worship, like at the beginning of our services. Call to worship to heaven, angels and elders, and all believers, you saints, apostles, prophets. It's a call to worship, for God has given judgment for you against her. This is the injustice and the vindic or the justice and the vindication that we have longed for, that the martyrs prayed for, being fulfilled. But it's not a taunt. It would be easy to kind of think that it's a taunt. Ah, world, God got you. I knew God would get you. There's no finger wagging here. In fact, George Eldon Ladd put it this way: it's so beautiful. This is not a gleeful song of personal vengeance, but an announcement of the vindication of God's justice and righteousness. It must always be kept in mind that background for such a song of vindication is the question of whether God's rule or Satan's deceptive power is to triumph in, the, in human affairs. A song of vindication of this sort, far from being one of personal revenge, is a cry of rejoicing that God at the end, will show himself to be God in the face of all satanic foes. Amen? So our rejoicing, as is true for all of our worship here and now, all of it is anticipatory of what is to come in heaven. God showing himself to be God over all of the evil that you and I have experienced in this world. And when we rejoice in this way, it flows from gratitude to God for what he's done for us saving us, vindicating us. 
And we really are in a battle here. Because the world thinks something very specific about us. The world thinks that we are, Christian, listen to this, because everyone outside of this church, this is what they believe about you. If you're going to follow Jesus, this is what they think. The world thinks you are weak-minded, foolish, and at best, naive. The world thinks that you are archaic, obsolete, and living in the past, out of touch with modern society. The world thinks you are narrow-minded and bigoted and sexist. The world thinks that you are charlatans and in fact that you are dangerous. But we need not worry about what they think of us. Because Revelation 18 makes it clear that God's going to make that right in his own time. As we wait, and as we continue our journey along the timeline, we're going to continue to rejoice by being devoted to his mission, telling others to steer clear and to look to Jesus, by giving to the cause, by serving according to our gifts, by witnessing to this world of his love and proclaiming his offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. That is our mission. Tell others to steer clear while we ourselves are steering clear. Let me pray. Father, again, as I prayed off the top, there's just so many different places that we're coming from right now. And, and Father, we need your Holy Spirit to work, to, to bring conviction to every one of us because a message like this from a chapter like this applies to every single one of us in this room. It, it applies to everyone who's watching. Whether believer or unbeliever, there's a call here to steer clear of the world and to give ourselves fully to Jesus Christ. And so God, help us to see in this passage today the great hope that we have in Jesus. And not as believers to be looking to the world to fulfill any part of that. It's Jesus and only Jesus. Help us to understand these things, to live these things out this week. Father, we pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior.